And when we think about policing in its own right and schooling in its own right, then we can really have a clear picture of why policing schools will disproportionately impact upon racially minoritized communities more than others. Listeners to Undersong, Race and Conversations Otherwise. Undersong represents a commitment to amplifying the space for listening to what gets too easily buried, erased, or forgotten. In listening to the uncomfortable legacies of empire and coloniality that shape the present, this podcast serves as a local and global platform to exchange critical thought around race and the making of world otherwise. This podcast emerges out of Race Ed, a cross-university network concerned with race, racialization and decolonial studies from a multidisciplinary perspective. And the song, the Race Ed podcast is alternately hosted by Shaira Vadasaira, Nasser Mir and myself, Katusha Bento. It receives curatorial and technical support by Sophia Hoffinger, and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. Today, I am hosting Remy Joseph Salisbury. Thank you, Remy, for being here. Remy is a Presidential Fellow in Ethnicity and Inequalities at the University of Manchester. He is the author of Black Mixed Race Men and co-editor of The Fire Now, anti-racism in times of explicit racial violence. He has written widely on race and racism, with a particular focus on racism in education. His forthcoming work with Laura Conley focuses on an anti-racist scholar activism in the UK universities and will be published as the book this year in 2021. Remy's an active member with the Northern Police Monitoring Project and a founding member of the No Police in Schools campaign. He writes regularly for print and online media. Remy, thank you. It is a pleasure to talk to you as always, especially now when critical race studies and institutional racism as being questioned in relation to its educative relevance and existence. Denying the problem of racism is to deny the structures of our society, that our society has problems. And today we're going to discuss a little bit in, in more depth or focusing on institutional racism as a constant presence in the British context in relation to the police, the, the presence of the police in schools. So could you tell us a bit about the project and what initiated this campaign? Yeah, thanks, Katusha. Great to... Great to chat to an old friend and good to be part of the podcast as well. I, I've been trying to avoid podcasts for the last couple of years, but I think they're becoming so much a part of the way we spread and share ideas now that yeah. um, they can't be avoided anymore. Anyway, the, the No Police in Schools campaign, uh, we're, we're based in Greater Manchester. We, we It's been going now for just over a year. We, we had a community meeting. It was actually one of the last times I was in a room full of people uh, before we were locked down. So it was March of 2020. 
Um, but the backdrop to it, I, I was doing research in schools. I was interviewing teachers about race and racism in secondary schools. And every time I went into a school to meet a teacher, I was surprised to find a police officer at a reception or a police officer walking around the school or a police car just in the car park or driving around the car park of the school. Um, I was even more surprised that people didn't seem to see it as anything out of the ordinary in some of the schools that I went in it. It obviously become a really normalised feature of schooling in those particular schools. And it's important to say in those particular schools because mm. police are not in all schools. At the same time, my friend, uh, fellow activist, Roxy Lagan, was doing some research uh, on policing schools. So we started, we, we were in conversation about this through the Northern Police Monitoring Project and Kids of Colour. There were several community events in the year where young people spoke about policing schools and highlighted it as a problem. So there's these various different factors uh, highlighting the issue of policing schools. And the momentum seemed to be building. We put in a freedom of information request and, and found out that there were plans to significantly increase the numbers of policing schools. So we called a community meeting. Um, the turnout was amazing. There was lots of teachers, young people, community activists, academics from, from across from across Greater Manchester. So it was really, really encouraging, but also really underlined that for communities that this is a problem. So that's how we got to forming the campaign. And now we're we're over a year in. We released a report, decriminalised the classroom and we're meeting regularly, organising regularly, um, but the message from the state is that they're still pushing ahead with this. Andy Burnham, as the Mayor of Greater Manchester, is pushing ahead strongly with this. Sadiq Khan said that as we find our way out of pandemic and lockdown, it might be worth putting more police in schools because he is anticipating an increase in violence and increase in antisocial behaviour. Not sh not entirely sure what his logic is for anticipating that, but the energy from those in power is still there to place more in more police in schools. But there's a lot of energy in communities of resistance to resist it as well. That's fantastic and brings a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, at least the way that people are organising to to go against this imposing policy. So can you explain a little bit more about how uh, you see the police as an institution? And maybe as I would put, and maybe you can explain a little bit better than me, how it is could be a colonial enterprise in the way that the state is formed and informing people about the need of feeling safe or providing security. And, uh, well, of course, that will connect with the presence in the schools. But first, let's talk about the police and how it is framed in the British context. I think it's really important to think about policing in its own right. Um, and when we think about policing in its own right and schooling in its own right, then we can really have a clear picture of why policing schools will disproportionately impact upon 
racially minoritized communities more than others. So it's an interesting time to be talking about this as well, that as we're recording, we're just a week after the release of the civil report into um, racial disparities, which um, as, as campaigners predicted, outright denies the existence of institutional racism. This was predicted because Sewell has said this in the past and Boris Johnson's race advisor has said this in the past. So it's not a surprise that this report would come to this conclusion. But I think the concept of institutional racism is really, really important to us. And that's perhaps why there's been such a attack on it through this report and through the actions and discourse of the government more generally. So it's tied in with attacks on critical race theory, tied in with attacks on Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. But we should be able to say the evidence is there to suggest that the police force is indeed institutionally racist. It's there in this state's own data. If we look at stop and search statistics over the last 60 years or more, we can see that consistently black people are more likely to stop and search. The rate is nine times more likely than white people, I think is the latest statistic. And although these statistics fluctuate, the disparity is always worryingly stark. Um, And that's just what's recorded by the state as well. I think what you hear on the ground from young people is there's a lot of police harassment, uh, police intimidation and stops that are not recorded. Those disparities exist in use of force as well and use of taser. And they're embedded institutionally through things like gangs databases, which uh, my colleagues and friends, uh, Patrick Williams and Becky Clark have done a lot of research on this and have showed how black people are so disproportionately more likely to be stigmatized and labeled as gang members. and there are a whole range of consequences from that in, in, terms, in terms of the surveillance and harassment we have experienced from the police. It's racism's embedded in the artificial intelligence as well. So from top to bottom, I think the logics of white supremacy underpin policing. You know, more, more critical research on policing uh, questions the idea that policing is just to improve society, to protect us all and to keep us all safe. Alex Vitale, the US scholar based in New York, he he argues that the role of policing is actually to protect and to maintain the status quo. And that status quo is um, organised along race, class lines. The status quo is white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy, as as Bell Hooks would put it. And others, others have made these arguments about the way the police maintains the status quo as well. Lisa Long, Adam Elliott Cooper. There's a whole body of research that implores us to look at the police with a more critical eye. Um, Adam Elliott Cooper, in particular, is doing the work of tracing tracing the police as a colonial enterprise to highlight how practices that were tested in colonies return or boomerang, as Cesare would put it, to British mainland, you know, mm. CS gas, for example, is one example of something that was tested um, in colonies, in counterinsurgency policing, 
was seen to be unthinkable on the British mainland and later comes to the British mainland to oppress the most marginalised in our society. We also see this with militarised policing. But then more broadly, the, the ideas of collective criminality, I think we can see uh, similar logics underpinning the way the Mau Mau Kikuyu in Kenya were seen as uh, collectively criminal and the way current gangs, which are always racialized as black and perhaps black and brown, are also collectively criminalized and collectively punished through joint enterprise. And then the, there are the broader logics again of black deviance that root through enslavement and coloniality and still shape the way policing is operationalized today. But they also shape the way education is operationalized, and we see that in the school exclusion statistics. We see that in disciplinary processes and just the negative stereotypes that circulate in our schools, produce low teacher expectations, low societal expectations that, again, have, have a range of implications for racially minoritized students. Yeah. Thank you for this complete answer with so many interesting uh, suggestions for to go further in the in the research on police and coloniality that are so embedded in together. Uh, we are going to put this uh, information on on the podcast details because it's important to you know for people who want to go further in this in in this conversation. So what are you talking about regarding the way the police responds or reproduces this uh, colonial discourse of not only inferiorizing, stereotyping and criminalizing uh, people of color, but as a specific mark of the anti-black racism that is constituting a, a, well, a pipeline between school and prison? Could you talk a little bit more about this pipeline and how... It is interfering with the well with the educational process. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, again, it's really important when we talk about policing. You can really get into the detail of the ways in which policing is racist, classist, and sexist, disabled, and so on, without necessarily thinking about the implications, how it how it works in practice, and how wide ranging the wide reaching the impact of policing is and i think policing schools is one example of how deeply embedded police are in our societal structures and the the school to prison pipeline is a concept that's developed in the us it's been taken up very usefully in my mind um, by people in the uk karen graham for example is written really really well on this and is the idea about how schools prepare young people for in future occupying places in prisons becoming part of the incarcerated population and it's important to say that this pipeline it you know it's not neutral or random it's racialized and classed so uh, black people for example are massively overrepresented in our prison population. Another thing to say is that our prison population is massively privatised, one of the most privatised in Europe, uh, which creates a vested interest in putting more people in prison. 
the, the Conservative government have spoken about and have committed to expanding our prison estates in the UK. If the prison estate is expanded, those places will need to be filled because there are vested capitalist interests in the filling of those prison places through what Angela Davis and others have called the prison industrial complex, which we often think about as a US problem, but we can be sure that it's a problem here too. And one of the easiest ways that we can feed people into prisons, it seems, is to put police officers in our schools. Now, police, of is, police officers in schools is not where the school to prison pipeline starts. Detentions, school exclusions, mm. all of these factors feed it anyway, because if someone is excluded from school, they're far more likely to go on to be criminalised and incarcerated. But what policing schools does is really, really solidify that pipeline and make a much more direct route from our schools into prisons. And there's some amazing research in the US that has looked at this, looked at this issue in that context. The ACLU's report on bullies in blue is an excellent resource from 2017. But we don't want to be too reliant on the US. Uh, although there's some amazing work done there, it, it really is a problem here too and something that we we need to be yeah. aware of and something that should really raise alarm bells about the placement of police in schools. So really, I think what it highlights is how the police are part of a, a racist web that entangles society from prisons to schools and all the other areas of our society that they, that they encroach in. Fantastic. That's so important to to raise awareness of how important this this conversation is in the British context, not only in the academic uh, sphere as in terms of research and uh, knowledge production in that area, but in as a conversation, as a community conversation. And that's what you're doing in the No Police in Schools campaign, uh, which is Amazing. And I'm going to repeat that uh, because that is going to link with my next question. Um, so no police in schools is how policing in schools project is ingrained in a current and complex racialization politics affecting people of color, like the lives of people of color. So how this project that you, uh, you are maybe starting and having such a a great participation of the community, uh, the teachers, the neighbors, the parents, the students, uh, could be a project of resistance beyond Manchester. Yeah. How do you think it should be led? That's a, it's a really, really good question. And um, also how it ties in with resistance uh, in other ways, you know, beyond the geographical. It's been an interesting question for us. We we focused on Greater Manchester because this is where we organise and it seems manageable and we we perceive that we can put pressure on the mayoral office and the local police force, which for a number of reasons is potentially vulnerable at the moment because of various failing, failings from Greater Manchester Police that has led it to being put in special measures. But we've also been trying to strike a balance between having a local focus but making arguments that resonate nationally too and we're in we're in conversation with other organizers in 
London, some organisers in Glasgow as well who were who are doing similar things, um, developing, if not campaigns, at least interventions around this this issue. And we're also part of a international network with organisers in the US and Canada, where they've actually had quite a lot of success on this issue in Toronto. And again, those those organisers in Glasgow and Scotland. So it's important for us to recognise that the racism we face in local contexts are uh, national and international in the nature in their nature. There might be localised differences. There might even be differences in national context, but the, the underpinning logics are often very, very similar. Um, and we need to be aware of that, I think, to be, uh, to be effective. The other consideration, I guess, is the capacity, the capacities you have as organisers to run a campaign. And in that sense, that's why sometimes it's a bit easier to operate on a more local level. We do think, though, if we were to be successful in Greater Manchester, which would be to sever the ties between uh, policing and schools to destroy the logic that leads us to think that we need police as enforcers in our schools or police in any guise in our schools. If we were successful in that regard in Manchester, then I think it would have ripple effects for the rest of the country. I think it ties in with other resistance movements anyway. And, you know, it's important to say that we're, we're building on the we're standing on the shoulders of, building off the back of campaigns that have gone before us, but also uh, campaign, campaigns that are ongoing at the moment, we're connected with them. They've laid a lot of the groundwork around, take the No More Exclusions campaign, for example, amazing campaign highlighting um, the profound, devastating impact school exclusions have, the deeply racialized and class nature of those exclusions. They've, they've made a lot of the arguments that we can draw on around racism in schools. Um, there's wider campaigns around policing and police monitoring, again, that we can draw on. And a lot of the energy and um, arguments put forward under the Black Lives Matter mobilization in 2020 have been incredibly generative for us too. Um, and of course, Black Lives Matter built on decades of anti-racist protest before it. But in particular, some of the arguments that have been made around abolition, again, these arguments have been being made for a long time, but they've gained mainstream, maybe mainstream's too far, but they've gained a certain popularity in the last year. That really, really adds, creates a window of opportunity for us to make our arguments about the removal of police in schools. And I, we would suggest, and my friend Roxy Lagan really makes this argument very well, that the removal of police in schools would be a, a first step towards defunding the police uh, and to the abolition of the police. So we, we start rolling back where the police are encroaching in various areas of our lives. And that, that's a first step that allows us to understand that there are other ways that we can um, set up our societies without policing. We do that in the microcosm of the school, perhaps by advocating for more teachers, more youth workers, more counsellors, 
instead of cleans. And should should caveat that, that by saying we would need that those professionals to also be racially literate, trauma-informed. You know, we shouldn't just assume that teachers and counsellors aren't going to reinforce racial problems as well. But by advocating for uh, those positions instead, I think we, we're starting to do to take steps towards defunding of and then eventually the abolition of policing, which is not <laughs> not an easy task but chipping away in areas like this i think is a way that we can do that very important that uh, the communities in their own autonomy can organize and strategize the best way to think about how to resist this initiative of putting policies in, in schools, but also how to request or demand this reform in the school system, because it is still very crystallized in this pipeline of criminalization of people of color and also even in the discourse right how how uh, the the students of colors are, are treated and and even in the curriculum right because this is something that well we talk a little bit in our work a little bit maybe a lot <laughs> i would say <laughs> that's uh, that's a very important part of our of our work academic academically speaking and also I think as an activist, but in in terms of uh, the abolition of police, the abolition of um, I I would say also from the from a Brazilian perspective, there is a very strong initiative of the abolition of prisons, and this do you think it is a the the decolonial dream or the decolonial possibility? How do how would you how would you situate that project? Yeah, that's that's such a fascinating question, Katusha. I've been thinking recently that there would be something very interesting to be written on the relationship between abolitionism and decoloniality. Mm. I I don't know the answers. I would be very very interested in seeing that. I I imagine there's a there would be a lot of overlap, a, a lot of connection um if we if we recognize that the police the police is a colonial enterprise formed formed through colonial logic in, in as part of colonial processes then it's we could see decolonizing the police as ultimately its abolition um so i, I think that yeah there, there's a lot of interesting connections there but with abolition as well i think Ruth, Ruthie Gilmore says that I think you should never try to paraphrase a quote because you always make a mess of it, don't you? But um, she says that there's one thing that we need to abolish and that is everything. So it's important that we understand that is, abolition is about radically transforming all aspects of our society because these various institutions the, the structural logics underpinning those institutions, they're all intertwined, 
And in that sense, I think both decoloniality and abolitionism, they, they attempt to, as Angela Davis says, grasp at the root to really look at the foundations and those foundations have been shaped through coloniality. So, you know, there, there's some really, really interesting connections there, but yeah. maybe you, I think you would write that paper much better than me, so. <laughs> to be discussed further. I think it it is part of our open ends in when whenever we discuss decoloniality because we're still figuring it out and well finding uh, our ways around or through uh, this traps of coloniality mm -hmm. so complex. Yeah, we're so entangled in it ourselves, aren't we? Though? Yeah, absolutely. And well, I I wanted to go a little bit more towards that direction in terms of um, because of the no police in schools as such a successful campaign successful in terms of engaging people uh, the results are yet to come and as I said it is an ongoing negotiation right um, how do you position yourself as a scholar and activist in this project mm. it's very, very interesting and as you know something I've been thinking a lot about recently but the the no policing schools campaign has been really really valuable for me in making sure that i'm connected to what's going on in activist communities in organizing communities and not just being kind of um locked up in the ivory tower and disconnected from what's going on and the issues that are facing communities so I, I hope that by being part of those communities and an activist, it gave me an insight into what needs looking at, what is urgent for our communities, for communities of colour, um, which informed the, informs the organising that I'm doing, but it also informs the academic work that I'm doing. So I've been writing and researching on this issue, wrote the report that I mentioned before with Laura Connolly and Roxy Lagan, but also some of my own work um, on racism in schools looks at this issue. And Sivanandan talks about the role of our role as being to provide the fuel for the motors of resistance, to work in service to communities of resistance. And I think there's a lot of lot of inspiration that can be drawn, and that I I draw from that. So my my academic work is, I hope, often inherently or increasingly political. I'm trying to feed into struggles and uh, confront the issues that are facing most marginalised communities. There's, there's things to be aware of, uh, power dynamics when you're organising, you know, academics, academic knowledge is often valorised at the expense of other forms of knowledge that can be just as important if not often more important more yeah. valuable so that's something i think i need to be very reflexive about as i'm organizing and guard against the kind of vanguardism of the intellectual leading a movement yeah. but yeah that's a that's a constant balancing act that i'll need to keep checking myself on but i'm sure we all keep checking ourselves and checking each other yeah yeah that's important and really inspiring in terms of how you approach this um this engagement and the urgency to to have this relationship with 
outside this ivory tower, outside academia, which is, yeah, closer to, to what is important and what is in also in our hearts, uh, but not only as a researcher, as someone who's going there just to do research, but to do something. Yeah, I think there's, there's some some uh, excellent writing around scholar activism, uh, in, including a paper written by Catherine Chadwick, Patrick Williams and Becky Clark on... Um, on, on these issues, on sites of resistance. And they highlight that engagement is not just about producing the knowledge production and the most glamorous aspects of it, but it, it can also be being a shoulder to cry on, picking up the phone, uh, buying or preparing food for community meetings, stacking chairs after community meetings. And that that's that's often kind of work that can be important in, in communities of resistance. Sometimes, I, I think uh, you'll know as well as I do, I think non-academic activists will quickly tell you that much prefer you to be doing that stuff than pontificating with your academic theories. Which is not to say that theory isn't incredibly important to, to activist movement, because of course it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, thank you for that. And I think in terms of uh, activi- uh, scholar activism, I'm just going to throw a teaser here in this podcast about the upcoming book that you are publishing with Laura Conley about this topic. And could you tell us a little bit about that just as a continuation of this uh, topic on on on, yeah, on the course. campaign? So the, the book's title is Anti-Racist Scholar Activism. It's Coming out with Manchester University Press later this year. Um, it's a project we've been working on for a few years now. It was maybe born out of frustration when, when I was doing my PhD that you'll know all too well about Katusha. Um, we've had a lot of these conversations, but looking around and having a sense that academia, the university isn't doing enough to support resistance movements and more, more worryingly or more importantly, wondering about my own role in it, whether I'm doing enough, same with my co-author, Laura. So we, we had a lot of these conversations about what we can do, um, how university can better serve, to, to use Sivan Anden's phrase, to serve communities of resistance. So it's really a process of us thinking that through. And since we finished our PhDs, we found more and more people doing important work, being part of activist communities, doing work that has political implications that serve those communities. And we we interviewed a lot of those people, people that we massively admire to get their perspective on um, how we can operate in these institutions. So on one level, it's looking at the practice of scholar activism, the bridging of activism and academic scholarship another element that i hope is in i hope is in there as well is is a critique of the contemporary neoliberal institutionally racist university through the eyes of um anti-racist scholar activists or whatever term you might use, you know, Patricia Hill Collins talks about intellectual activists, uh, Moulton and Anne talk about subversive mm. intellectuals. Some of the people we spoke to just referred to themselves as 
troublemakers. So it's not not so much about labels, but about this practice of trying to push against the university or, or to use the resources within the university to feed into anti-racist resistance. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It's really inspiring. Uh, I wanted to finish this uh, podcast uh, just saying a few words regarding my my own experience, and especially now uh, with the this outburst of the Black Lives Matter, as you mentioned, uh, being or receiving so much attention that open up opportunities for conversation, but also uh, for not for many superficial conversations that are just used as a token for anti-racist uh, cover of reports or something like that. It is difficult sometimes to find our place in this anti-racist discourse because also how Black Lives Matter was took on board in within institutions, especially here in the UK. But as a, a Black Brazilian person, uh, having so many friends in Brazil in the front line of anti-racist movements and knowing how dangerous that is because right now many unnamed people <laughs> are still dying because of police violence. There is a, there is a song wrote by Belchior called Sujeito de Sorte, which translates as a lucky guy, where he says, and here, you may find this, this lyrics and this song in a, a documentary. It's a beautiful clip, actually, video on Netflix. It's called Amarelo or Yellow. I don't know how it was translated, um, by Emicida. And this song uh, says that I'm translating with my own words. I think it's politically important to keep the first person as it was written in the song originally. It says, I've been bleeding too much. I've been crying a lot. Last year, I died, but this year, I won't. So not dying is a 2021 goal for people of color, especially under the hostile environment that is present and institutionalized in the UK. And still, I believe that there is an anti-racist or decolonial, if we may use that word, responsibility to imagine the world as we want. Um, not as a hierarchical demand, but as a collective negotiation, as you were doing in the No Police in Schools campaign. So do you agree with that idea of that we, as we also have an, a responsibility to imagine a different future that is not the one that we have nowadays, just as a simple continuation of that? And what do you believe for our future? Yeah, yeah, I... I think it's really, really important. It's something I've not been great at in the past. And I think a lot of us as academics, we're much better at highlighting the problems than using our imagination to um, to think about what, what we actually want, what our futures could look like. And Robin Kelly talks about freedom dreaming, the importance of freedom dreaming of using our imaginations in that way and I think his work on it is really really generative um there's also we can also draw inspiration from um pockets within our society in activist communities in pop-up education projects or or in the in the solidarity 
the solidarity movements that emerged in response to COVID, you know, the mutual aid stuff. The, the, there are glimmers that we can draw on to uh, inform our imagination, to allow us to envisage, envisage those futures. So, yeah, I think it's massively, massively important. And for me, um, the work of imagining a society beyond policing will be central to that. And once we start doing that imagining, it encourages us to imagine imagine the abolition or the moving beyond other repressive, oppressive institutions. And the last thing I would say as well is, it's important that our imaginations are global in, the, in their outlook as well. You know, there's, there's socialist discourse that is incredibly nationalist and therefore incredibly limited as, as persuade, persuaded as I am by, by some of the ideas when they're framed in nationalist ways that mean they would be harmful to elsewhere, particularly the global south, then they're always going to be problematic. We have to, we have to think globally and that part of that is being connected with resistance communities elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah, because that's also connected with our diasporas, whether that was uh, an unwanted diaspora or a willing diaspora, but it is part of our journeys as people of color that is finding uh, so much oppression in the world. And yeah, these conversations with the Global South are, are, are really important. Now, um, Continuing with Emicida because I fell in love with that with that documentary. Although I would have some words to say about it, he says that I am not the racist target. I am the nightmare, and I would like to use this sentence as the objective or the motto of uh, our our doings. Uh, of course, that. It is a, it is negotiating with the contradiction of that, yeah, as the targets of, of racism as people of color, but also being the nat nightmare. And I hope we can make justice to this call in our everyday actions. And you listener, think about that and keep tuned, uh, for our next episodes. Remy, would you like to say any few words at, at this end? No, I think you summed it up beautifully there. The idea of us being nightmares um, tying that in with the idea of us freedom dreaming and you know being some people's dreams but a nightmare for white supremacy is really beautiful right on so thank you for listening to undersong race and conversations otherwise you can find this and all our other episodes on race Ed website soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to receive all our new podcast episodes and share them with your colleagues students and friends thank you for listening